From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're bidding farewell to 2022 with a look back at the work my colleagues at HQR did this year and a look ahead at what's in store for 2023. Later in the show, we'll talk with Cami Mojica, Grace Vitalione, and Kelly Kinoyer. But first, I'm sitting down with Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. So I think it's safe to say there was a lot of news from the New Hanover County School District this year. Yes, there was. One of the biggest stories, a couple of stories that I followed were the budget negotiations. And then there is this continuation of culture wars that played out in the 2022 election, and which helped swing the board to be Republican. So that was a big change. Teacher attrition is also another big issue. I covered it earlier this year and just about a couple weeks ago, I tackled it again, and it's still not looking the best for retaining teachers. People are leaving for a myriad of reasons, but we know that they are dissatisfied with pay and with more or less respect for the profession. Yeah, I think that's in the background of like every story you've done about the district. Even if it wasn't a story about attrition, it was there, the elephant in the room. And so you've actually, you know, you had a chance to talk to people who are going through this. Right. I think this one story I did, the teaching assistants were organizing in December of 2021. They were saying, we want a $17 an hour. That continued that activism into the new year where a lot of TAs were coming to the call to the audience to speak to the board members to do this. I spoke to this one activist, her name was Christine Miranda Ambrose. So I talked to her in December. I talked to her during these budget negotiations earlier this year. And she was elected as the treasurer for the North Carolina Association of Educators. And so she was very outspoken about if they don't pass this pay increase, then I'm going to leave. And guess what? The commissioners didn't pass the pay increase. And this is what she said. They're not going to give us this raise. I'm gone. I'm the type of person when I say something and I do it. And I miss Ashley Ashley, um, High School and working with all the students every day. It was really hard to make the move, though. But I had to do what was healthy for me because working three jobs was extremely hard. So there you go. A lot of teachers say this. They can't make ends meet, so they have to work a second job on the weekends. And we already know from talking with them and through my stories that they spend a lot of time ensuring that their students are being successful and they can't get all their grading and planning done during the school day. So a lot of teachers work overtime. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say a lot of these stories are going to continue into the new year. Definitely the battle against teacher attrition. Definitely some questions about how the new Republican majority school board is going to handle things. And of course, continuing to follow the civil cases launched by the victims and alleged victims of Michael Earl Kelly and Peter Michael Frank. I'm curious to see how those lawsuits go and if the new board reacts differently to them than passports. Yeah, because publicly before they were elected, they were saying pay them. For example, Vice Chair Pat Bradford has said that at a call to the audience. Yeah, and it will be, and this is no disrespect to the the newly seated board members, but we have seen this before. We actually saw this with the 2018 election that swept in a number of Democrats um, who were vocal about more transparency and, and handling this case. And then they had a closed door meeting with the lawyers and some people's attitude changed. So That's right. I'm curious to see how that goes. All right. Let's talk about another big series of stories for you this year. Um, Some really important reporting. 
uh, but frankly, sometimes difficult and frustrating reporting. And of course, I'm talking about the Cape Fear Community College. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this year I tried to go with issues with FTE and issues, and that's full-time equivalency, how they count course credits that funds the college ultimately. I tried to look into the issue of contract buyouts, and when I did that story, I asked the college through a public records request, can you tell me how this person was paid and what fund were they paid out of? And they said, that's confidential information. So what I had to do was go to the state and ask for the information, and they gave it to me. And, I mean, I thought that was a good win for transparency, and I could report that, yes, maybe they should have switched funds, not out-of-state funds paying some employees who had recently been let go to institutional funds, and so that was really interesting for me. But one of the bigger stories, as I've reported on, and you and Michael Pratt from WECT have talked about, is that Jimmy Hopkins became very vocal about decisions that the college was making with this new nursing building. This was- is a board of trustees member, former board of trustees member Jimmy Hopkins, right? Yes. He had a disagreement with the president. And then lo and behold, a couple weeks later, we have the commission chair, who is now um, out of office, Julia Olson Bozeman, removed him under some interesting circumstances. But nonetheless, there were threats of lawsuits. Then Jimmy backed out of it and said he wasn't because he wanted to he wanted to support the students and going through a contentious lawsuit wouldn't help them is what he said. But he did have a strong message for the current board of trustees who oversee Jim Morton's leadership. As long as you are smiling and everything's great and there's no ripples in the water, everyone's your fan. But the few times I've disagreed or, or with this administration, it's been pretty chilly. And I'd like to challenge the other trustees not to just sit there. If you're on the board just to sit there and say yes and yes and yes, then you need to rethink your seat on the board. Discourse is never a bad thing. Public discourse is even better. And we saw at the last board meeting in November that one of the newest members, Ray Funderburg, tried to talk about publicly Jimmy's removal and the vice chair, the chair, and the board attorney pushed him into a closed session. I consulted with Duke Law School, um, Amanda Martin, and said that it's likely that the lawyer's advice could be protected, but a discussion about Jimmy's removal could have been done in an open session. And so it's not looking the best right now for a public discussion over contentious issues. Yeah, the the board has been very, very tight-lipped about things. Um, even though we have heard off the record and on deep background that there are some private disagreements, so there's that from the board, and then there is, you know, at least what some of the legal experts we've talked to believe is the overuse or overdependence on redactions and refusing public records requests. I don't think that story is going away anytime soon. No. Happier news, I would say, on the UNCW front. You got a chance to sit down with the new chancellor. Yes, Dr. Aswani Valetti. I had a newsroom segment with talking with him about what he wants to do. And, you know, you had your big reporting that he, with the assembly, that he almost didn't get that position. And that was really big news this year. But he's there and he's committed to continuing equity, diversity, and inclusion work. He wants to grow the university's public profile, take them into the next 
um, level of a research-based institution. All right, so you can be a dogged investigative reporter, but you are, and I say this lovingly, sometimes a science nerd. I am. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some of your science reporting. They bring me a lot of joy, and... You know, researchers are spending years trying to find out answers to big questions, and they they go through peer-reviewed journals. I mean, this there are always drawbacks, and they have to admit to that, limitations with any study. But they are finding really interesting things, and especially the marine tech side, marine biology side, I've really dug into with the university. I got to visit the um, Mammal Stranding Program Center. I got to see a necropsy of a dolphin. I got to to witness some researchers taking me out to Mason Bro Island to watch a turtle's nest hatch. I got to visit the coral lab that they have and how they are on the cutting edge of providing researchers with information on how to save the coral reefs around the world. So it's pretty exciting. And then there's Wally Bob. Uh, I, you know what? I'm, I'm so fond of Wally Bob now. Me too. All right, tell us about well, if some if somehow people missed the story. I think it was one of our more popular stories from the entire year. But if if people miss it, what, who is Wally Bob? Actually, full disclosure, Wally Bob comes and visits my neighborhood. Your neighbors I'm, with Wally Bob. I'm neighbors with Wally Bob every July when he comes up in the creek, and oh my gosh, it was a Sunday, and there were all these neighbors right around Forest Hills Elementary School. They were all gathered, and there he was, Wally Bob, almost a ten foot alligator and he was eating a turtle. So I had my phone, I was with my kids, and I interviewed one of the sheriff's deputies who had to respond. Not many people get to see that and see that this close. So we want to encourage that, let people know, say, hey, like they are here, but be respectful of them because that's a massive, massive yeah. animal. They can cause some serious damage, but they're so cool to see because yeah. you don't see them that often, especially one this size. So this just is an example of how wildlife and the environment, people are really concerned about how they're doing and want to know, you know, want to hear stories about, you know, alligators and turtles and the corals. They want to know how our environment's doing and how the animals in that environment are doing as well. All right. Uh, Before I let you go, I want to hear a little bit about what you're looking forward to for the next for the upcoming year. Yes, I will continue to follow the New Hanover County School Board, but I'm looking to move into some more county reporting because they're the ones who control the purse strings of Cape Fear Community College and of the school district. So if I can bridge that gap for our listeners, I would really like to. So I'm going to start going to some of those meetings. I'll continue to follow CFCC, go to their board of trustees meetings, see what they're doing. You know, this fate of this civil case that we mentioned earlier of the survivors of Michael Earl Kelly and Peter Michael Frank. I'm really looking forward to reporting out if there's a resolution to that this coming year. And then I think for all of us, we all need to be recommitted to reporting, especially us, reporting on democratic values. And I'm talking about democracy values. Lowercase d. Yes. So are people being open and honest with their decisions? Is there transparency? Are we committing to these principles where the public really has a say 
and public officials are responsive or as responsive as they can to them and to us. So I'm hoping to continue that. Public records are a key way to do that, to increase that transparency. And I know that we're going to do a newsroom wrapping up our One Small Step grant program and how that went. And again, that's bringing together two people from opposite sides of the spectrum and where can they agree. And I think that's positive. Yeah. And we'll hear a lot from you uh, during that newsroom because you were uh, you actually took on the lion's share of the burden of, of doing these uh, interviews, which actually ended up being a really kind of transformative experience sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I will say one thing we heard from a lot of our contestants, regardless of where they were on the political spectrum, was that they wanted the news to do a better job of holding the government accountable and not getting distracted by partisan issues and focusing yes. on what is good for the people and what is bad for the people. That's correct. So for now, happy holidays and happy new year. Rachel Keith, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Okay, well, we need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment with my colleagues Cami Mojica and Grace Vitalione. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman, taking stock of the year that was 2022. With me now is my colleague, Camille Mojica. Kemi, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You are in a good mood because you just petted a dog. I did. Uh, I, I can't tell you. Argentina won the World Cup. Now I pet a dog this morning. I told you, I'm not having a bad day before the next year starts. Not a single one. So this wasn't the easiest year for journalists, so perhaps it's probably... It's fair that we get a little bit of a morale boost before we talk about what the year was like. <laughs> right. I deserve this happiness. We all do. We do. All right. So you've been here about a year. Yes. Um, thanks for being here. Congratulations. We love having you. Um, what has it been like and what have been some of the stories that uh, have stuck with you? So it was a bit of an adjustment at the beginning. I had to go back to a writing style that I was not used to. Uh, again, you... Kelly and Rachel are constantly editing my pieces still, um, and I think a big part has to do with being concise, because a big part of my college career was also writing very long-winded academic papers. Yeah, and we kind of have to speak two languages here, too. Right. You know what I mean? So the writing style at first was very difficult for me, first of all, from a journalistic standpoint. Second of all, writing for the ear. Writing for, for radio for is radio. tough. And I'm a, I'm a digital journalist. Um, by trade. And so learning to, and I, I was not afraid of the semicolon now and then, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, when you have to write for radio, all of a sudden, um, it's, uh, I hate that Hemingway is the go-to example because he actually has some ponderous sentences, but like. He does. Um, but that's the example people use, but it's, it's very short, punchy, to the point writing, but it also has to land just the right way in someone's ear. And it's this magic concoction of catchy but not, I don't know, sensational. And it has to be the kind of thing that someone who, like, I always, the example that was given to me was imagine a single mother who has three kids in the car and is trying to get them all to school while getting ready for work and is also somehow absorbing, you know, detailed factual information about the day. Wow. And you have to be the person crafting that. Wait, that's actually a really good way to think about it. That sounds crazy and impossible, but then there are definitely days where, like, I'm driving and thinking about what I got to do and I'll pull over and like send an email and then I get to my destination and I realize, thanks to NPR, like I know what's going on in Ukraine and the stock market and Congress. And like, I have how all do... those little bits of information and you think about it, you're like, was I listening? 
how did I get that information in my head? But right. now I know. And so you have to then turn around and do that for your own reporting. So the writing part of it is tough. Exactly. Um, and then there's the reporting part of it. And I will say, uh, even people who have been in the thick of reporting, yes. when you move to a new town, um, you're not starting at ground zero, but gosh, you're starting pretty close to ground zero. Yes. 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 Because you have to build your sources. and. Yeah. So I guess... The reason why I say my first series, if you will, of stories that had to do with community violence going on here in New Hanover County in particular um, was the fact that I had to talk to so many different people around Wilmington. I had to talk to people in the criminal justice system like Judge Jay Corpening. Um, I had to talk to community advocates like those working at places like Sokoto House. Um, and I also got to talk more frequently with people from the city. So PIOs as well as city council members, county commissioners, um, the PIOs with the county. So for me, that was like my first real experience of starting to talk to people that are around Wilmington in the different aspects. Yeah. That it, <laughs> it is tough to get on the radar and stay on the radar. Yes. Um, even though it's their job to kind of be a bit more responsive to the press, when it comes to something like Sakota House, um, you know, they, they're doing what they're doing. And they have some probably well-earned issues with the media, um, especially what gets called, you know, parachute journalism, which is when predominantly white journalists go into black communities and talk to black organizers when there's a particular story and mm -hmm. then just kind of never go back. They never follow up. You they know? never follow up. They don't, they don't keep that conversation going. And so, you know, I wouldn't, I would understand any organization like that that was kind of skeptical of the press. So earning the trust of people like that, if you want to report on them, has taken you some time. Yeah, it took me a solid almost half a year to build a proper solid relationship with um, organizers over at Sakota House that now they feel comfortable coming to me with a story idea. And to wrap your head around the politics in this town. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I don't want to put you on the spot, but no. what's the, I mean, for, for people who are on the outside looking in, just like, you know, reading the day-to-day -day coverage, what's that like? It's, it's really interesting because I'm going to say this broad sweeping generalization, but I feel like younger people on the end of Gen Z, when we're growing up in high school and also college, thinking about local government isn't always in the top of our minds, right? So when I got here and I started realizing local government is where all of it starts. I couldn't tell you the name of any of my commissioners back home in Long Island. I could not tell you who was in charge of my county. I could not tell you anything. Here, I can tell you all those things because I need to know, number one, for my job. Um, but I, I've realized now that the local government and local politics is the most important part because that's what affects you immediately right here at home. Um, walking into that situation when all of this is already happening, everything's already established and you don't know anyone's name, you don't know what anyone looks like, um, it can be difficult. But I will say, I think having the assignments of covering government meetings from the very beginning to establish the voices, establish the faces, the names, and then you start to understand where the connections are between people on boards, between how they voted in the past versus what they say they will vote on. Again, I had to talk to you and Kelly and Rachel a lot to just explain things to me. Like the hospital sale with Novant, I needed you to explain that entire saga to me three times, well, four times over. It's so complicated. I mean, and if you were here for it, Mm -hmm. um, you had the benefit of some good reporting from WHQR, from Port City Daily. Uh, the Star News had some good reports on it. The Wilmington Business Journal had some good reports on it. So y you had a lot of scaffolding, right? But if, <laughs> yes. I, you know, if I just drop you in the middle of some random town, Akron, Ohio, oh, right? 
And I, I, I've been doing this a while, but if you just dropped me in Akron, Ohio, I would be scrambling to figure out what the heck was going on. Exactly. Like, so, who's who? What is going on? Yeah. I need to know. So, well, you, I, will, I will say you are at the point now where we have, um, you know, we now have our community fellow, Grace, and yes. we'll have an intern next summer. We're looking forward to a new employee through Report for America. So I feel like now you can kind of be a little bit on the other side of some of those conversations where it's like, Cammy can explain to the new person what the hell is going on. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's really exciting to me because I walked in one day and I was the babby. And then I feel like one day after you've been working a long time and you get your feet under you, you are no longer the babby. And then you get to teach other babbies that come into the office. That is one of the good parts of the industry. I think it's really cool. Right. Um, and I think a lot of people don't really realize how far you are in that process until someone new comes on board. Yes. And you're like, oh, wait, wait, I actually can explain this entire saga to you. Don't worry. I got it. And we, have, we have so many sagas. We- <laughs> All right. Um, so what are you looking forward to in the new year? Um, full disclosure, again, I did not know that reporting was what I wanted to do. I went to school for it, and then I went into podcast producing, and I was like, hey, this is really cool. I don't really know if I want to keep doing reporting. Came back, did this job, and I've done both, hand in hand, together. Having actually done the journalism for an entire year now, do the reporting, I realize it is something I actually do like to do. Um, And there are certain things that I like doing more than others. One thing I didn't think I would really enjoy is looking at court documents, and also just financial reports. But it's all right there. It's so much fun for some reason. It's, I cannot I yeah. cannot stop reading through them. Do you ever get that feeling? I get that feeling. <laughs> Here's my, and I feel the exact same way. Um, <laughs> and it's because it is so difficult to get a straight answer out of most people in power. Yes. Because they are trying very carefully, usually to walk at least one, if not multiple lines. <laughs> yeah. And when you're talking to... You know, people in the community, um, they're pretty free with how they they feel, but like they're not usually the ones being held accountable. Yes. So it's to get a hard and fast answer is is rare Mm -hmm. Um, because it's either someone's opinion or it's the person who knows, but they won't quite tell you in clear, simple terms. Yes. And then you get a court document and there's a section called findings of fact. So this is everything that like both sides you somewhat begrudgingly have agreed on yes right? or an, a budget right where it's like we spent this much money on it not what we allotted for it this is what we actually spent this is what we spent and that's it and it's the final answer it's the answer and right. that is in, in a world of uh murky answers and and, and gray areas yes and just having the document in your hand that is it's it's God, it's just a relief. And then you have to go back into the real world and explain it to people and get people's comments on it. But. That's the funny part. Yeah. But, I mean, I feel like when I look through a court document especially, it's kind of like a Wikipedia page, right? Because they refer to other court decisions that helped influence the logic behind the ones that are currently in this court document you're looking at. So, you know, you magically click on the link and then I go type in the court case and I find the other one. Um, and for me, that's been a really big learning experience because – I don't know. I feel like the law is pretty important to know about, even basically. Um, even if you're not a journalist, just every day, Joe Schmo, I feel like people need to know more about the law and how it works. Um, so realizing that that's something that I like to do, I am more than happy to continue doing that and do more of that in the upcoming year. Again, I really like having my hands on documents. You can ask Ben. 
I print out every single document I ever need for a story. Even if I only need like a line from a page of a slideshow, I want the whole thing in my hands. And then we recycle, don't worry. Yes, we do. I promise. We promise. We don't print in color either. I save toner. Yes. But I love looking through documents. That has really been probably my favorite thing. I think maybe it's because I feel like I'm writing a research paper again. A little bit. You know, like looking through sources before you write the argument of your paper. I mean, and that's in a way what journalism is, right? You go, you do the research, you put the research together, you cite your sources, Mm. and you have to write it in a way that is compelling and fair and makes sense to the average person. Yeah. So the essence is the same, but, like, the execution is different. Yeah, and then sometimes you have to turn it into a podcast. (laughs) Yes, you do have to do that. But that's what I'm looking forward to the most. So 2023, making podcasts, reading legal documents, kicking ass, taking names. That's going to be me. We're going to have to bleep that. You are going to have to, but you know what? That will still be me. All right, great. Well, Kami Mojica, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Ben. All right, next up for our year-end edition of the Newsroom, my colleague Grace Vitalione. Grace, thanks for being here. Thank you. All right, so I want to talk about what you've been up to for the last five or so months, um, because you've only been with us for a little while. But Five months, yeah. But you've put a lot of work in. So what have been some of the things that have been interesting to you? Yeah, I mean, I started out, like, literally my first day. I started out um, reporting on offshore wind and learned about how this could be a source of a lot of jobs for North Carolina, but also that a lot of people are scared about it, and there are a lot of perceptions of offshore wind circling out there. Yeah, there's some myths and maybe even some misinformation. And so I wanted to kind of dig into that. I brought, you know, a few experts together and had them. I kind of ran through questions that I got from Facebook comments on our story and had them respond and be like, okay, well, you know, what do we do with the offshore wind turbine when it's not when it's dead, right? Well, you there's a plan. There's a plan. And you don't just leave them there. People talk about also, you know, these are going to be foreigners coming in. These aren't going to be North Carolina jobs. And so I had Catherine Collins, you know, she works at the Southeast Wind Coalition, kind of respond to that as well. In terms of ongoing jobs, um, a a 2.8 gigawatt wind farm would have over 900 permanent jobs. So those are not jobs where people are going to come in for a couple of weeks and leave. Um, If they're not currently North Carolina residents, they will be North Carolina residents. Um, But you've got to encourage this kind of development to be able to bring in those kind of jobs. But, you know, I think no matter where you go, 900 new family sustaining um, wage jobs is, uh, is nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. Ongoing jobs, which is what she was talking about, That's where you have that 900 number and where she said, you know, if you're not currently living in North Carolina, you're going to have to be. Yeah. And some of this reporting, you know, it's early days, um, but I think it's super important to have the stuff on the record because however you feel about it, people are making promises and claims about what it will deliver, whether that's jobs or gigawatts. Right. And so now we have something to hold them accountable to for. So what were some of the other stories you worked on? I also kind of followed the journey of the Black Lives Do Matter in Racism Now art installation that was here before I was <laughs> in Wilmington um, at the Gervais Memorial Park. Um, and when I was reporting on city council, they ended up voting to take it off government property 
or public property, I should say, because they were the council as a majority was worried about setting a precedent for government speech. Right. Um, What if these other what if other groups come up and come to city council and say that they want a sign and what kind of precedent would that set? And so that and that led to the vote to take it down, um, which then led to a lot of community members, primarily black community members, being like, hey, that sign actually meant a lot to us, especially in light of Wilmington's very dark past concerning racial relations, like with 1898. And so we had one woman who got up and spoke kind of about the racism that her parents had faced. Her mom was given, you know, unfair literacy tests if she wanted to vote. Even as a child, she recounted not being able to go into certain stores in Wilmington because she wasn't white. And so she talked about what that sign meant to her. It is an apology to my parents, it's an apology to me, and I beg you to reconsider. Yeah, that was, you know, kind of a powerful quote because one of the critiques we've heard, not just of the Black Lives Matter sign, but of a lot of other acts of sort of government-backed or like university-backed statements about supporting Black Lives Matter, one of the critiques was always that this was just, you know, trying to appeal to the woke mob. So hearing from Wilmington residents for whom this actually meant something, I think turn that on its head a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And then maybe because of that, maybe not, uh, the council voted to change some sign ordinances so that the mural could be moved to a better location, or not better, to a different location, um, which it now is in the process of doing so. They t- City workers and artists behind the sign took down the letters uh, yesterday, December 21st, and are now going to deliver it to Cameron Art Museum. And it'll be there until late May. And then after that, the co-owner of the sign, Jenna Robertson, said that she'd be considering multiple other locations for it to go to. All right. So you also worked on this year a lot of our, you know, job in the fall every year is elections. So yes. you got to see you got to step right into the thick of that. So fun. And important yeah. to democracy. <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I had never actually reported on an election before. So that was fun, you know, trying to inform voters. And so my little piece of that was to interview the soil and water board candidates and be like, first of all, what does the soil and water board do? <laughs> and second of all, what would you all do if you were reelected or elected to the board? And so that was the you know pre-election information for voters get to know the candidates that I did and then I also did some pre-election reporting on um, we had a visit from the poor people's campaign I went to that event and you know interviewed people there and I also talked to people just in the Wilmington community about the importance of people in low-income communities and black communities as well getting out the vote Also, this was an election in which people who are on parole can vote now in North Carolina. So that was cool Um, and a step forward for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I didn't realize until we started talking about this, because this came out of a a series of back and forth court cases, um, I wildly underestimated the number of people that this would impact. It's I, I might have guessed dozens, maybe hundreds, but it was way more than that. Oh, yeah. And so... That, that was cool to do a pre-election look with those two stories. And then obviously the day of the election did, you know, went out to the polls, talked to voters 
a lot of people were passionate about the school board and felt like that was an important race. There's also been like a long history of voter suppression in North Carolina. And so I talked to a state senator out of Durham, Natalie Murdoch, and she talked about that history. So there will always be forces that will try to challenge um, the right for black and brown people to vote in North Carolina. So we just have to remain vigilant and uh, we'll, we'll keep fighting. All right. So the year is almost over. What next? I know you're working on at least two big, messy projects that are taking over entire murder boards, dry erase boards. But what are you working on? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, in October, I interviewed a man named John Pike about how he had been, you know, his home had been affected by Hurricane Florence, and he has been waiting ever since then to receive a hazard mitigation grant that he applied for and was approved for. And so these grants are supposed to, they're not supposed to be immediate relief. Um, they're still through FEMA, but they're, they're more for, okay, this is a spot that got deeply affected by the hurricane. We shouldn't build here again, so we will give you this grant to have the county essentially buy your house and um, return the area to natural, to a natural habitat, um, or they can raise your house. And John was like, I don't, I don't want to live here again. And so I just want to move on. But he hasn't been able to because he's been still waiting on this grant. Um, and so I've been kind of trying to figure out this complicated bureaucratic process of FEMA grants, how those get distributed in states. And so I'm hoping to do some clarifying interviews on that in the early new year. And then I've also been starting to work on fisheries management in North Carolina. Well, I'm sure we'll have a lot more reporting from you. Those are, I can tell you, I've watched you work on these. These are, these are not easy stories, but um, I look forward to seeing them when they come together. Uh, Grace Vitalione, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Okay, well, we've got to take one more quick break. But when we come back, I'll sit down with Kelly Kenoyer to talk about her work this year. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to a year-end edition of The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman, here with my colleague, Kelly Kinoyer. Kelly, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, it's the end of the year, and we're looking back at some of the big stories. And I think one of the ones that I know struck me and struck a lot of people I've spoken with was about bike and pedestrian fatalities. Not a happy story, but an important story. Yeah. Um, so full disclosure, I myself am a cyclist and I commute to work with my bicycle. And I, because I came from Oregon and Portland, was very aware of how different the bike infrastructure is here. And if you walk around Wilmington or even if you drive around Wilmington, you'll notice there's not a lot of sidewalks or crosswalks either. There's entire swaths of some of these major arterials that have businesses on both sides, but absolutely nowhere to safely cross the street. So I was curious about the level of danger that that there is for pedestrians and for uh, cyclists. And it turns out that Wilmington is one of the more dangerous cities in the state for it. And one of the one of the premises of this uh, reporting, which was a whole newsroom episode, which we'll have links to, was that the infrastructure, or in some cases, the lack of infrastructure, is killing people. Yes. Um, which I thought was initially struck me as hyperbolic. You won me over. 
Um, but you you based some of this around an actual story about someone who lost their life in a way because of this. Yeah, I mean, there were tons of different cases, and I looked into all of these, and very, very few of them come with charges. So long as you don't run away after you hit somebody, you generally don't get charged with a crime, um, even if you were speeding and therefore endangering people's lives. The big thing that I found was that Market Street is the most deadly street in Wilmington. 10% of crashes in Wilmington happen on Market. It's a busy street. But 30% of the fatal crashes happen on Market Street. So there's something about that road that makes it dangerous. And the thing that it is, is that it's an arterial. So an arterial road is one that's basically designed to move a lot of cars relatively quickly, not highway speeds, but pretty close. You know, people are going 45 or 50 sometimes on market, especially further towards the beach. And that is a very dangerous speed to be going when it comes to striking a pedestrian or a cyclist, because most crashes at that speed are fatal. And I think this all came down to the idea of design and how we think about this stuff and who the city is for. And I think based on your reporting and the experts you talked to, it was pretty clear who is it for? Yeah, I, uh, I went to Chapel Hill for this story, and I talked to a bunch of advocates and people who are interested in urban design. And one of them was this Canadian named Tom Woods who came and gave a lecture there. This is what he said. Who's being affected, again, by the continual prioritization of the driver in both design and discussion? Um, that's what I think of awareness. It's more of an awakening, taking the blinders off to truly see the imbalance um, for what it is. And this imbalance has been normalized. So for him, it's really that children are deprioritized when it comes to the way we design roads. People kind of have this fantasy about, oh, the 70s were so great. The 60s were so great. Kids could just walk to school. We don't have that anymore. It's not safe for kids to walk to school because if they're struck by a vehicle, they could die. And that has a lot to do with the speeds that we allow vehicles to travel at within our cities. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's part of your sort of broader reporting on, on urban design and how we can think about cities. I know I certainly feel even queasier about sharing the road with cyclists, knowing that I didn't really know how to handle it and that the whole road is like rigged in my favor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've got to say, since this story came out, we've continued to get press releases about people dying on Market Street. We got two earlier in December and it just hits my heart every time because I know that these are preventable deaths. Yeah, it, but it wasn't all doom and gloom. You did get to hang out with your people, i.e. city design nerds. Yes, which is always great. So yeah. <laughs> I love that part. So um, another very cheery story. Uh, how's that for a segue? <laughs> another very happy story is the story of uh, pre and no, I'm not going to try it. PFAS. You do it. Per and polyfluoroalkyl chemicals. Thank you, Kelly. Yes. Uh, so actually, I did have fun on this one. Um, so in the pre-reporting process for the hour-long special I did on PFAS, uh, earlier this year, I also was in contact with a biologist who looks at how PFAS affects animals, especially alligators. So I got to help them capture some alligators. Scott Belcher and Matthew Gallette are the two scientists I followed around. So here's the clip. One or two other people on this rope, please. With the effort of four or five people, the eight-foot gator is eventually dragged onto shore, and Gallette sits on its back to get control before wrapping its snout with duct tape. Ah, we've got a fuzzy wound. These scientists from North Carolina State University aren't catching gators just for fun. They're actually investigating how wildlife is affected by PFAS. That's per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. Okay, and Scott Belcher says something about uh, a fuzzy wound. What is a fuzzy wound? 
Yeah, so that is um, a type of injury that alligators will get, and it shows kind of infection. But it's unusual for an alligator to have an infected wound because they are kind of like super good at healing themselves. They're incredibly good at it. So these alligators should not necessarily have these kinds of injuries, but when they do, it tends to be an indication that they have high levels of PFAS in their blood because that is a chemical that can cause autoimmune disorders. It was an interesting story to report on, a lot of fun. I got to sit on an alligator, uh, and it was kind of a fun way to tell a story that is really complicated, really scientific, and changing constantly. Right, yeah. And I I guess the big takeaway for the scientists was that these animals are sentinel species because they're so tough that if something is, you know, impacting their quality of life, we are in a lot of trouble. Yeah, we say canary in the coal mine, but it's really alligator in the Cape Fear River. There you go. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of people have reported on PFAS, but not a lot of people have done it while um, riding an alligator. So That's kudos. true. I may as well update us on PFAS chemicals and because a lot has happened this year. Uh, so the federal government announced that they are going to create health advisories for Gen X at 10 parts per trillion, which is significantly lower quantities than the 140 parts per trillion that we had previously set as a state at the NCDEQ level. So now a lot of the requirements that had been set for Gen X in well water, that kind of thing. It's a lot more strict now. So Chemours has to provide drinking water for a lot more people because of that. They also went to the parts per quadrillion level for the legacy PFAS, PFOA and PFOS, which is like an unimaginably small amount of PFAS. Like you just can't basically have any of it or it's going to negatively impact your health. And I think that Chemours is suing over that. So this is going to be a story that continues into the new year. Yeah. There's also another thread that we need to follow here is that that is actually a number that is lower than can be tested for uh, by you know various utilities. And so you're kind of holding utilities to a standard that they can't tell if they've met or not. Yeah. So we're it, the one thing that the story has shown us is that as the story of PFAS has evolved, so has all of the technology around it, whether that's filtering or measuring. So there's just a never-ending fire hose of info about this. So I appreciate you keeping us up to date on that. The latest thing I heard actually was that 3M is actually walking away from the PFAS market entirely. Um, I wonder if they're just going to do a spinoff company like Chemours is. I mean, that's the thing to watch because Chemours, as we know, was um, for all intents and purposes, from all the reporting we've seen on it, um, from Forbes, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, was created to absorb all of the toxic assets, both literally and financially, (laughs) from DuPont. And um, no one really expected it to survive, but it now is is making millions and millions of dollars. So I don't know if 3M is totally out of the PFAS game. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe they'll just have like 4M that's also still doing PFAS. Sorry about all of the bad jokes in Uh, this segment. (laughs) Yeah, well... Okay, moving on. Uh, There was one story, you know, this was, from my point of view, from the editor's desk, maybe one of the most complicated stories you dealt with, because at least with Chemwars, say what you want, most people kind of agree, Chemwars is the bad guy, and it's about what do we do about what they've done to the environment. The story of Hopewood was not as simple. No. um, So this was a uh, permanent supportive housing apartment complex that lost its, uh, the the landlord for this place had lost their grant that allowed them to do permanent supportive housing there. So they were evicting all of the residents, and it was more than a dozen. Here's Teresa Leto. She's one of the dozen residents or so that have uh, had to move on or have had to see rent increases since Hopewood kind of changed their finances. And it's hard when you have mental problems it is hard to adjust to a new place. I had trouble adjusting from my two bedroom that I was used to living in, to coming over here, being by myself. 
it was a big adjustment. And now to have to move completely out of where I felt safe, where I don't feel safe anymore, to a place that I don't know anything about, it's really been hard. For, it's hard for me. And so that for me was the core of the reporting because there are, as you reported, so many moving pieces, so many different organizations involved in dealing with not just the affordable housing world, but the specific world of, you know, permanent supportive housing. And there was, you know, name calling and finger pointing, and it, it got a little bit ugly at one point. But at the end of the day, it's hard to imagine how any of that bureaucratic wrangling could matter to the people who lost their homes. Yeah, these are incredibly vulnerable people. Most of them have been homeless uh, at some point in their lives. All of them have chronic, severe mental health issues. And that's why they were put into this stabilized housing, because they were not able to make things happen for themselves other than being supported in this way. And they were set at having 30% of their income paying towards rent. So that was all they ever had to pay, and the rest of it could go towards their other expenses. Seeing their rent go up to $850, that was an untenable change for them. That would be most of their income in a lot of these cases. And I think that that was one of the things that kind of got lost in the spat. We had Wilmington Housing Finance and Development on one side. That was the nonprofit landlord that was evicting everybody. And then we had the Continuum of Care on the other side. They're the ones who took the grant away. And it was initially kind kind of the COC blaming Hopewood for all of these problems, for getting these people kicked out. But then it kind of came to light after I started the reporting when things seemed a little bit off that maybe the COC kind of broke some rules to take this grant away from Hopewood. And that's something that kind of came from some dislike towards Betty Bisbee, who's the person in charge of WHFD. So it was a really complicated, messy story. And the thing that really got lost for a lot of the people who were making these fights happen was that there were lives on the line and that these people, some of them became suicidal from being evicted in this way. And it was a tough story to report. Yeah, I'm a government accountability reporter. And so sometimes even for me, the people get lost in the reporting. So I appreciate that you sort of kept them in the middle of the frame. Thank you. Yeah. All right, Kelly, your most difficult assignment of the year in 30 seconds. What are you working on for next year? Uh, probably housing and PFAS. <laughs> I don't think you could tear me away at this point. You make it sound so simple. All right, Kelly Kinora, thanks for being here. Thanks, Ben. Okay, well, we're almost out of time, but before we close out today's show, there are just a few things I wanted to add. First, I want to say thank you to all the public information officers and communication people who work with us as journalists. That's right, I am thanking PIOs. Well, some of them. On many occasions on this show, you've heard us voice our frustrations with the bad actors when it comes to government transparency. Those who, through incompetence or bureaucratic meddling or even malice, seek to prevent the fourth estate from doing its job. But as shameful as those bad actors are, there are also people working in government who take their job, and ours as journalists, really seriously. Now, we may not always agree but we're on the same page when it comes to the democratic values of transparency and the importance of a free press. So I'm grateful. Oh, and to the tireless, endlessly helpful clerks at the New Hanover County Courthouse, if you're sick of me pulling docket after docket after docket, you have never let it show. So thank you. All of these people have worked to provide the press with the public information that lawfully belongs out in the open. But a special thanks here goes to Jennifer Dandron, who recently left the city of Wilmington's comm team, where she was as steadfast in supporting the press and the public's right to government transparency, as she was in defending the city from sloppy reporting. 
I also want to thank all of the journalists and organizations who have worked with us. Journalism is facing a lot of challenges, and one of the last best hopes for the institution is collaboration. So my thanks to Port City Daily and WECT for working closely with us on a number of stories and this year's candidate town halls. Thanks also to the Assembly. It's a relatively new outlet, and we hope to work with them more in the future. Of course, a shout out to Shannon Bowen and all the good people at the NC Local News Workshop who support collaborative work with a real passion. And thanks to my longtime colleague, Michael Pratz, who is leaving WECT for his next adventure in 2023. But don't worry, we'll find ways to keep working together on tough stories, and you haven't heard the last of Port City Politics. Another big thank you goes to all the people who trusted us with their stories. Whether it was just a tip, or a conversation on deep background, or a sit-down interview to get into the nitty-gritty of a difficult issue. And we know public trust in the media is at what at least feels like an all-time low. So your trust in us means more and is more important than it's ever been. Thanks to our listeners and readers and all the supporters of WHQR. Like I said, journalism is having a tough time. It is, I think I can say, in real trouble. I don't know what model of journalism will survive to meet the illiberal and anti-democratic challenges we're facing right now, but I think a publicly supported newsroom has a real shot. I, I really do. And last but not least, a thank you to WHQR's board and station management. Now, we've been through a lot over the last couple of years, but the support for real local journalism has been unflagging. We've expanded the newsroom, and we've been able to really, really dig into some tough stories, and I'm sure that's ruffled a few feathers and made for a few tense moments. It would be easy to laugh that off as growing pains, but I know it's been tough sometimes. So if you're listening to this and you know who you are, thanks for standing behind us. All right, well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to my colleagues Rachel Keith, Camille Mojica, Grace Vitalione, and Kelly Kinoyer for their time and all of their reporting this year. Additional thanks to Cami for producing this episode and to the WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell, Jonathan Fresnel, and Megan McDevitt. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org or find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show in the new year, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.